Thank you so much. Wow, it's really a privilege. Can I sit here? You can sit there, yes. It's the holy seat, but you can... I'll move it over so I'm out of the holy position here. I'll stand. I couldn't handle the holy seat here. It is really neat to be here. We were here when we first came. Ange and I had been married two or three years. Where did Ange go? Is she outside? Okay, she's not in here. We'd only been married two or three years. It was 98 and 99 when we were here. And this body was a significant part of, of the Lord preparing us to go and serve with Wycliffe Bible Translators. So we joined Wycliffe as a church body. You supported us as we went down to Brazil. I was serving as a pilot and aircraft mechanic. And we really enjoyed coming alongside Bible translation teams and just being a part of seeing God's Word be made available in languages that 2,000 years after Christ was here still don't have the Word of God. And there still are many language groups in that condition today. But uh, So we served with Wycliffe. We were on furlough in 2009. We were back here in the States, and we saw the Lord transitioning us from working overseas to staying here in the States. We always thought the Lord would do that in by opening some miraculous door, and we would just see the Lord's will, and we'd move into that. That's not the way it happened. The Lord had us stay. We went about four months just seeking the Lord's direction for what's next. We had used a Righteous Rides van. Righteous Rides is a ministry started by a couple of guys uh, in a church very much like this one. They had grown up since the fourth grade and uh, good friends. They they saw the need that missionaries were having. They both went to Laternal University. Every missionary family coming back has the same two needs. They need something to drive, and they need a place to live. And they said, well, how hard can this be? So they bought a van, and they went after a nonprofit status, and it wasn't hard to find a missionary family that was in need of transportation on furlough. We used one of their vans. We were in their 17th van on our furlough, and as the Lord transitioned us from Wycliffe, we were about four months into that time of just, Lord, what's next? Lord, what's next? And the Lord wasn't showing us. And, and one evening, Angie and I were talking and said, I'm a hands-on guy. I, I'm an aircraft mechanic in my background. I'm always working on somebody's car. We said, well, why don't we just connect with Brett, who was at Righteous Rides, one of the founders, and, uh, and connected with him. Three days earlier, they had just had a meeting. They were doing this out of their own homes providing these vans. They were up to 20 at the time. They had just had a meeting and said, let's get a facility. Wouldn't it be neat if we could find someone to oversee that facility? And so the Lord put those pieces together. We moved down to Missouri. So we're just outside St. Louis, and we've been there now six years and providing transportation for missionary families. So when the missionaries, before they even come off the field, we connect with them, get all the paperwork done. We provide them the van. We put a GPS and a DVD in the van, um, provide all the maintenance for the vans, even insurance is included. Some missionaries, after four years overseas, to get an insurance company to insure you um, is a challenge. So we're trying to just take away that hassle. Missionaries on furlough have other things to be focused on than transportation. So we've uh, really been blessed to transition into that ministry and be serving there and it's just a joy for us to be here and to, and to see, you know, as, as you're preaching this morning, 
uh, just so encouraging to see the body of Christ functioning here and to be a part of that and to to know, he hearing that you're supporting three additional missionary families. Wow. Praise the Lord for that. Continue in that. So we, uh, we've had the we're kind of figuring out, okay, how do you do stateside missions? And, and what are the rules for when you, when you do a furlough? How do you do a furlough when you're in the States? And so we have, uh, this last couple of months, been able to pull away from my normal role at Righteous Rides and just spend some time connecting with, with uh, supporters and with family. So that's kind of what we're in the midst of now. And uh, that provides the opportunity for us just to come in and visit you here. So... We're going to be getting together uh, at Pastor Joel's on Tuesday evening. Yeah. So, yep. You bet. You bet. We have 100 vans in the fleet, and we consistently, almost a request a day comes in that we can't say yes to. So there are, we're serving any evangelical mission board, and... Just taking care of that need, but we're barely scratching the surface. There are so many missionaries on home assignment. So, yeah, it's a joy to be a part of that. Thank you, and um, let's, uh, let's, can we pray for the, uh, the Kimballs real fast? Lord God, we just thank you for the Kimballs' faithfulness and their desire to serve and be a servants. And Lord, as they come alongside and, and provide a needed service and support for missionaries, we just pray that you would continue to cause them to uh, serve and plant faithfully, and that in time that would yield a harvest of righteousness. We thank you for our friendship with them, our association with them, and just their continued faithfulness, and what a joy it is to be reunited in fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we got half an hour to ask any questions. I'm sure you don't have any questions from this morning, so we can probably just skip right on it. Anyway, here, here's the mic. Any questions from this morning or anything we've been studying in Luke? And Alyssa wants some help. Um, he's not a very good helper, though, so okay. Anything, anybody. Or just this morning was just old hat, like, duh. Anybody. <laughs> so you mentioned something this morning. I was curious as to where I could purchase one, a tomato tree. <laughs> Is this a new product? Is this something you've been working on? Is the it's, church supporting this? It's some, the pat, I'm, working on the, I'm working on the patent, but no. Oh, a sentient. That's tree. almost okay. as good. Do you guys remember when I talked about the foal having a baby or something? Like, what, the, what was the one where I got that all mixed up? I called a calf a foal. Yeah. My wife remembers. That's just like every week, Alyssa. If you're going to hold me to that standard, sorry. Um, okay. Yeah. Yep. Tomato tree. Okay. Um, yes. They're not a vegetable. They're fruit. Don't put them in fruit salad. Put Snickers in fruit salad, right? Okay. Only in Iowa. And it's a salad. It's not a dessert, folks. It's, I, I just eating salad for dinner. That's all. That's the problem. Zach's got a question. Okay. Okay. Let's get moving here. Let's. I have a serious question. Oh, a serious question. <laughs> um, so I know that you talked about this kind of when you were saying, like, um, 
in general, you know, are you producing righteousness or unrighteousness? Yeah. Um, but the uh, example of the, you know, good fruit and the bad fruit and like yeah. good or you know, thorn bush and grapevine, that makes yeah. it kind of see like one or the other. Yeah. And so how do I as a believer, you know, I've been saved and I'm regenerate, but I'm still a corrupt, sinful, fallen human being who sins sometimes. How do I use that example of um, fruit in a good way in my life and not feel like, oh, I'm saved. Oh, I'm not saved. Oh, I'm saved. And, you know, depending on the that fruit a, that I'm bearing. That, 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 that is a great question. And one of the things that is tough about this saying, and even a lot of the sayings in First John, is how binary they are. There, it's, it's black and white. It's cut and dry. And like you said, I think we live in a little more gray zone. Um, I, I'll answer it one way, and then I'll answer it from Second Peter. I'd say this. The real question is, what characterizes you? Are you an apple tree who occasionally bears thorns? Are you a thorn tree who occasionally bears crab apples? You know, which one really is your nature? And that still can be a hard question, and, and I think that can be difficult to discern. Turn to Second Peter chapter 1. I remember shortly after becoming a Christian, I really wrestled with how I could know this time it had been for real. What I didn't tell you is that during my, um, during my failed first college career, um, when I was up at UNH, uh, I, I made a couple of sort of bargain deals with God. God, I'll quit drinking. God, I'll stop smoking pot. God, I'll, you know. And, then, and so this, this one where I actually got saved, I'm wondering, how, how do I know this is any different from the other ones? You know, the other ones, I seem to shape up. I seemed, there seemed to be some change. There seemed to be some fruit. And then in no quick order, like a dog returning to its vomit, there I was again. And so I was two or three months into this um, coming to Christ, and just really, really, I was almost on guard lest I feel secure, get lazy, and slip. And so I was really wrestling with how can I know. And I remember um, reading Second Peter 1, and all of a sudden it clicked. To me, this, this, at least to me, was very helpful. So let's read Second Peter 1, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us into his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now there's the ground for the command that follows. Because God has given us his precious promises, because he has promised us that we can become like him, partakers in the divine nature, not that we become gods, that's Mormonism, but we can become godly, right? And because he's given us everything we need for that project. Verse 5. For this reason, there's the warrant, make every effort to supply your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge of self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and Zadok, be quiet. Zadok, yes, Daddy? Yes, Daddy? Okay. Sorry. Um, verse 8 is the key one. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For everyone who lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. How do you make your calling and election sure? You're, you're growing in those qualities. 
And that's the trajectory issue. You've got to stand back and look over the last three months, the last six months, the last two years. Are you growing in those qualities? Because Peter doesn't set it at a bar. It's not as though there's some magic bar of godliness. And if you're just under it, you're going to hell. It's, it's which direction are you facing and which direction are you moving? What are you becoming more like? Are you becoming more like a son of light or a son of darkness? Are you becoming more like your heavenly father or are you becoming more like your, your earthly father? Whose image are you being shaped into as the picture becomes more and more into focus? And so Peter just says, look, increase. It's growing, right? When that clicked, all of a sudden, like, okay, I can, I can live with that. Because First John is so, so black and white and so binary. It's, you're, you, you're either a son of the darkness or you're a son of the devil. You're, you know what I mean? Um, and so what do you what do? You do? I, I think that First Peter is encouraging. It. And this is where I think the body of Christ helps as well, because I think the danger of even evaluating ourselves is that we can either be too harsh or too lenient. So it's very encouraging to me when others comment on growth. I was just, having, I was just talking to a brother yesterday who was telling me about how um, someone he'd actually regard as an enemy at work came into his office and said, Hey, I really noticed that you've been controlling your temper a lot more lately, and I need to sample my temper. Um, what are you doing? Now, if that's not a wonderful testimony to growth, I don't know what is. And so it's things like that that I think are really powerful testimonies. I mean, instead of sitting there and be like, yeah, I sure am growing in humility. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the things we can do in encouraging each other's faith is we can point out to and praise God for the grace we see in other people's lives and, and, and speak to those things. So that, that would be my answer, would be, would be um, that. That Second Peter 1 makes it clear. This is about a direction you're heading in, an image you're being conformed to, and a growing pattern in your life. Not an absolute, it's not a bar that you got to meet. That's, that again, now we're back to Catholicism. That's, that's you got to be this righteous. No. You, you just need to be growing. You know, how do you know if a baby's alive? It's breathing and eating and pooping and growing, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the issue. That's pretty much what they do. Just, so you, just a heads up, Natalie. For the first, like, six months, that will be all your child does. Eat, sleep, poop. And cry. Crying and cry. There we go. You're thinking of playing with... No, there won't be any playing. It'll be eat, sleep, poop, cry. All the, and no sleep. No sleep. Till Brooklyn. Okay. Okay. Coffee. Coffee will be your new best friend. Yes. Yes. Okay. Any other questions? Because this is important. This is an important concept to get. Yeah, Wendell. Yes. Whoa, whoa. Mike, for, pos, for, pos, for posterity. For posterity, Wendell, we need to record this. Bulletin, bulletin, bulletin. Okay. It's working. I think the interesting thing about this uh, passage today is uh, uh, for a long time, you know, we always like to exclude ourselves from these parts of the scripture that say, okay, now, but he's talking about disciples. Okay, I'm not, no, I'm not a disciple, but okay, I'm not a carnal Christian. I'm kind of in between. And then there's the apostles. But what's neat about this passage is it forces us to understand that we are one or the other. Mm. You know, and, and we all, you know, I thought, well, yeah, a disciple, okay, maybe I'll get there. I, but, yeah, we're followers of Christ, we're a disciple, and this applies to me. Yeah. So I think that's uh, a, a need awakening. Mark Sullivan and I was talking, I think we, you need to change your, 
your uh, these last few weeks have been kind of tough on us. <laughs> well, we're done. We're done with the sermon on the plane now. So next next time we come here, it'll be Jesus healing the uh, nobleman's son, and it'll be yeah yeah the, the really convicting part. It's been four weeks. From, we'll get back to more convicting stuff later, I'm sure. But but uh, yeah yeah. Um, no, that that's absolutely true. I mean, that was the thing that really struck me is he's not talking to the Pharisees. He's not even talking to the crowds. He's talking to people who would identify themselves as disciples, and he's warning them. I mean, think about it. He's rebuking them. Why do you? That's got to mean a good percentage. I mean, I don't want to guess, but is, who knows? As many as half? I don't know. Certainly not one or two of a great multitude. You don't rebuke the entire group for two guys. He rebukes the entire group. Why do you all call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And we, we think we can be saved without being disciples. He's telling people who are disciples, there's a bunch of you who aren't saved. <laughs> I mean, just because you're a disciple doesn't mean you're saved. I mean, that, that's how far our thinking can be off, is that we've, we've come up with a category for, I'm a Christian non-disciple. When Jesus is talking to disciples who may not even be Christians, and that's challenging, and there's no way around. He's not, this isn't for the Pharisees. This isn't for the, the heathen. This is for the people who identify with Jesus. And I've been, this has been rocking my... The message... Dude, if you thought the message on loving your enemies was rough, that week was rough. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. yeah for, I could imagine for other people, right? Is that true? Yeah? Okay. Okay. No, that, that is what's challenging. That is what's challenging. Okay, other, other questions or thoughts or anything? Jim. No, no, you got to wait for the mic, Jim. Play by the rules, man. Play by the rules. Not really a question, but an observation that in the modern church, I think we can all observe this exactly. Um, Mm. But this goes clear back to in the presence and in Jesus' day. It's kind of astounding to me. There's nothing new under the sun. And this is the same lie that's been in place for millennia. So, yeah. yeah. No, no, it, it is. It is. It's, it's striking that Paul, in all of his letters, he absolutely emphasizes salvation as a gift by free grace, not by works. And then, lest anyone misunderstand that that then means you can do what you want, in almost all of his letters, he has passages. I, I wrote them in the back of my Bible, but I'll just give you one example in Ephesians 5. So after hammering salvation by faith, justification by faith, and not of works, I mean, that's where you get those wonderful passages, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, and this is not our own, but the gift of God. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, right alongside of those bold declarations of, of sovereign grace and salvation, he says this, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you. He's anticipating counter-teaching. Notice the emphasis. You can be sure of this. Don't let anyone deceive you. And so the Apostle Paul can at the same time insist salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, based on the testimony of Scripture alone. And you can be sure of this. Don't let anyone deceive you. People who live like hell go there. 
And, and, and that's the tension that we're trying to, we're trying to talk about. And you, the danger is you say that, if all you say is that second bit, people start thinking, okay, I got to do stuff and then I go to heaven. But if you only just talk about the other side, you end up with decisionalism. And, and, oh, I think so. I mean, why is he, Jesus is talking to a great multitude of disciples and rebuking at least enough of them that he just doesn't even separate them out who apparently think they can call him Lord, Lord, and yet not obey him. I mean, and that, that's what's dangerous about the things we sing. I'm much more comfortable singing songs that are true no matter how I feel. Like, holy, holy, holy is always true. Right? Holy, holy, holy is always true. I feel crummy. I don't feel terribly much in love with God. He's still holy, and I can say he's holy. I am much more nervous with songs that speak about me. Right? You with me? Um, because it can be, you don't want to get into the habit of letting your lips say something that your heart doesn't believe. Because eventually you'll start saying, Lord, Lord, and not believe it. Eventually you'll start saying, Lord, Lord, and good live as you please. So I, I, I prefer songs that speak of who he is, not how I'm feeling right now, because I don't always feel that way right now. I mean, I will give you all my worship, unless you're singing eschatologically, like in the kingdom, I will give you all my worship. Who on earth can make that? I mean, if you can, God bless you. But I can't sing that. Um, that's why I change the lyrics whenever I can in um, You Are My King to In All I Do, Let Me Honor You. I don't dare say in all I do, I honor you. <laughs> no, I don't. And he knows I don't. And I don't want to get in the habit of lying to him. So anyway, that's, that's for free. Sorry. Um, but but <laughs> let, me show you, let me show you where it really comes from. Go to, go to Hebrews 12. This is a good aside. You know how Hebrews has warnings, passages in it. There's one that I think frequently gets misunderstood. It's the one about the root of bitterness. And you, I've read articles about you've got to be careful about bitter feelings raising up in the body. I don't think that's what it's talking about. Yes, we need to be worried about and be on our guard against bitter feelings in the body. I don't think Hebrews 12 is talking about that at all. Okay? Hebrews 12.12. 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. They don't see the Lord because they're holy, but no one who doesn't grow in holiness is going to see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, and the ESV puts it in quotation marks because they're picking up on something, springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So, he quotes this root of bitterness passage, which I'll get to in a second. And then the example he gives is Esau. What Esau says is, I'll sell my birthright now and I'll get it back later. And he's unable to repent. This root of bitterness isn't about bitter feelings. It's quoting Deuteronomy 29. Go to Deuteronomy 29. Um, you can compare the Septuagint's Greek with this. There's, I think, 31 points of similarity. It's almost like the, the ESV is not quite willing to put it in quotation marks, but they, I mean, they put it in quotation marks. They don't put it in the bold italics they do when it's real quotation, but it's, it's, you'll see it's Deuteronomy 29. In my mind, there's no doubt. This is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 29. 
Here's Moses' farewell address in his farewell book to the people of Israel. Pick it up in verse 18. And tell me if this context or theme, you ask me how old is this problem, is in Jesus' day, it's apparently back in Moses' day too. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Now that's always a perennial problem, falling away, apostasy, abandoning God for other gods. But there's an added wrinkle here. One who says in his heart, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Let me translate that to modern Christianese. God will forgive me. They're hearing the words of the covenant. They're hearing Moses speak what God says. And even though their heart's turning away from God, they bless themselves saying, it's okay, I'll receive the blessing even though I'm going to go do what I want. That's the warning, that specific example. Does that sound like Esau? I'll try my birth right now and I'll get it back later. Because the, then it goes on to say, um, beware lest there be among you, verse um, 18, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That's what Hebrews 12 is grabbing onto, that phrase. A root of bitterness. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. If you're going to fall away from God and go worship other gods, you are far better off openly admitting that than trying to pretend. You are far better off openly admitting, I don't believe this anymore. Go do my own thing. Like it's still gonna be that'll be awful for you. Way worse. And this is, gets back to who's Jesus most angry at? Pharisees, the hypocrites. I'll play the religious game and I'll get the religious blessing and I'll do my own thing. So it's a perennial problem. It's a problem on Moses' day. It's a problem in Jesus' day. It's a problem in our day. Paul's saying, "Let no one deceive you." And it, it's it's a perennial problem. We, we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to go our own way and have the blessing. And so we're warned all through the Bible about that. Um, any other question? I can give you another example of this. It's, it's littered through Scripture. We go to Jeremiah 3 and, and take a look. If there's no questions, we'll go to Jeremiah 3. Questions? Jeremiah 3 it is. Go to Jeremiah 3. Then Ezekiel 14. Jeremiah 3. This is a remarkable, remarkable passage. Jeremiah, as you remember, is the prophet immediately predicting the Babylonian captivity. The ten northern tribes have already been gobbled up by Shalmaneser V. And what's left is Judah and Benjamin, Benjamin, and some scraps from the tribes. And he's warning them that what happened to the ten tribes will also happen to them. And he tells them a parable. Verse 6, 
The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? He's referring to the 10 northern tribes. So there's Israel and Judah. Israel's the 10 northern tribes who've already been judged, already taken away, and Judah is the southern two tribes. Have you seen what that faithless one, Israel, did, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she's done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah, two southern tribes, saw it. They saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous, get this, her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly and polluted the land and committed adultery of stone and trees, yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And then here's the remarkable statement. The Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Why is Israel more righteous? Didn't pretend to worship Yahweh. When Israel went off and abandoned the Lord, they're just, woohoo! And they just ran off. And they, they, they were destroyed. And God says they're more righteous than Judah, who wants to try to play the game and do their own thing. We're back to the worst thing you can do is play religious games. It's better to be Israel than Judah in that story. Because Israel doesn't pretend to worship God. We love other things, we're going to go do them. And Judah's trying to do both. And they're worse. Like the church at Laodicea. Or like, let's go to Ezekiel 14. This is a passage I frequently will open up if I'm, if I'm doing um, premarital, if I'm doing postmarital counseling. This is frequently a passage I'll go to because a lot of times people will come in for help not fundamentally because there's a holy God that they're sorry they are offending, but because things are getting really difficult in the marriage, and that's not pleasant. And that's, I mean, that's good in a sense. That's how God gets our attention. We know something's wrong. But the danger is you're just coming to God for a fix. You're not coming to God as a servant. You're coming to God, if you can fix my marriage, great. If not, and Dr. Phil can fix my marriage, I'll go to Dr. Phil. And if Oprah can fix my marriage, I'll go to Oprah. And if you got something, I'll try that too. And so we'll, we'll go here. Uh, Ezekiel is a prophet, same time period as Daniel. He's with the first wave, because Nebuchadnezzar comes in, takes the people off the land in three waves, and he's with the first wave that are in the outskirts by the Tabar River. Daniel's the prophet in the capital city in Babylon. Ezekiel's the prophet with the sort of the regular people out in the countryside in Babylon. And what's happening is they want to hear word of how Israel's doing. They want to hear, is, is, they're going to eventually hear where the temple got destroyed. But they're still hoping for a comeback. They're still hoping that the, the remnant in Jerusalem will, will be victorious. So chapter 14, verse 1, Then certain elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. So again, we've got a scenario where people are coming respectfully to the prophet. They're sitting at his feet. They come to him. Looks good. So he needs a word from God to let him know, no, this isn't what it appears to be. What's really going on? Verse 3, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. This is, by the way, the only passage in the Bible that I'm aware of that speaks directly of heart idols. You know, we talk about it all the time, idols in your heart. This is the only passage in the Bible I'm aware of that actually uses that nomenclature. Um, it's very biblical 
word picture. I just, I don't know of any other passage that speaks of idols of the heart directly. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts, set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Which is to say, even though they're coming to the prophet, they're idolaters. They're not covert. They're not overt idolaters. They're covert idolaters. They're not outwardly, openly worshiping the Baals, the Ashtaroth, Dagon, things like that. But inwardly, they are not Yahweh worshipers. And they want news. Son of man, these men have set their idols in the... Um, taking their idols into their hearts, set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent. And turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from your abominations. For any of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet to consult me through him. I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Does that sound a little bit like Deuteronomy 29? Like pretty much the worst thing you can do if you're unfaithful to God is pretend you are. Like the most provoking thing you can do to God is betray him in your heart and pretend outwardly to be faithful. The, 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 the piece of this that most yet comes to the prophet. How dare you? As if you're fooling God. You know, and the same thing in Ezekiel. They call you and they come and they sit before you as one who sings a lovely song and they don't listen. And so again and again and again throughout Scripture, that type of hypocrisy, that type of double talk is just um, is just lit up. So yeah, it, this isn't something unique to Jesus' sermon. It's not unique to Jesus' day. It's in our day. It's in every day. It's in Paul's day. It's in it's in Moses' day. Yes, sir, Mr. Evans. Hold on, are you on? Mike Mike Evans, yes? Okay, hold on. It's on. Um, it sounds, I've heard, I heard once, you know, the, the only, it says somewhere in the Bible, the only forgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mm. It kind of sounds like we're dancing on that with this conversation here. Is, am I, but then again, I'm not sure if I really understand what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It's something that... Mm. I think I've, 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 I know that verse. I've known it for 30 years, and I've never really understood what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means. Interesting. Okay. We got two minutes. You wanted to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it sounds like we're dancing on it. To, no, no, I don't think we're. Well, I'm not saying we're dancing on it in, in that. Um, I mean, to, 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 to pretend to be a believer and not be believing is kind of. Oh, no, there's, there's a blasphemy implied there, certainly. You're, you're, there's, there's two ways you can use God's name in vain. You can use it like a curse word, or you can use it meaninglessly. And so to pronounce God's name, to bless God's name, and to call him Lord, Lord, and to deny him with your actions is to blaspheme his name. Um, the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, in short, with two minutes to go, I, I think is the willful, knowing, self-aware rejection of the testimony of the Holy Spirit to who Jesus is. That's, as I look at and compare the examples in the Gospels where that's spoken of, the Pharisees have seen miracles, they've seen signs, and then they start saying, okay, he, we can't deny he's doing miracles. He's doing miracles by the power of Satan. And at that point, Jesus is saying, okay, you know too much. 
You're accountable for what you know. And there's no turning back. You know that I have supernatural power. You know darn well, that's probably a terrible problem. You know very well that I'm from God. And yet you're unwilling to receive my message that you'll blaspheme me and the testimony of the Spirit. You're done. Here's the simple thing. If you can repent, you haven't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You haven't committed the unpardonable sin. If you can turn and believe, if you can return to Christ in faith, he never turns you away. I think with Esau, what we read was he was unable to repent. He he was sorry he lost his birthright. He wasn't sorry he sinned against God. And so he was really, really sad with tears. I lost my birthright. I lost my birthright. But he couldn't get himself to be sad about, and I abandoned the God who gave me this promise. So if you can return to God, you're not... You haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Jesus is clear. He turns no one away. But there will be some people who in their hardness of heart will never be able to turn. They're set in their ways like an addict can't give up their drug of choice. They can't turn around. Okay, and that help for now? We can pick this up next week, but the, that, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a big thing to bring out. That's my two-minute answer. We will pick this up next week. Thank you very much. The Lord bless you. Make sure you talk to the Kimballs if you get a chance. You guys might stick around for a few more minutes if someone wants to say hi. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Have I blessed Lord's Day.